0: Hello and a warm welcome to the Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and I'm delighted to be joined once again by my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer. It's great to have you back, Helena. How have you been?
1: Hi Mark, yes it's good to be back. I'm a little jet lagged but very well thank you. So this week we are celebrating the midpoint of season two with a special episode looking back at the 2022 farmer forecast that we published at the beginning of this year. As we're a quarter of the way through 2022 we'll be checking in on the predictions that our guests made about what this year would hold for the farmer industry. The question is were they correct?
0: Yes, Helena will be joined a little later by GOLD's assistant editor, Isabelle O'Brien, to check in on whether those predictions are becoming a reality. But first, it's over to some key news stories with things you might have missed. Helena, why don't you kick us off?
1: Sure. So one story that particularly stood out was that NHS England, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, more commonly known as NICE, and the Department of Health and Social Care have hit a crucial milestone in the UK's efforts to tackle antimicrobial resistance. The three bodies have finalised an evaluation of two new antibiotics, one from Pfizer and another from Shinogi, that will both be paid for using a new subscription-style model, one that's been compared to a Netflix account.
0: That's right. Back in 2019, the UK announced a new payment model that will pay pharma companies upfront for their antimicrobial products based on the value they provide to the NHS as opposed to how much of the drug is being used. The scheme aims to incentivize companies to invest in researching and developing new antimicrobials amid a concerning decline in antimicrobial developments.
1: Yes, and Pfizer and Shinogi's drugs are the first two to be selected, evaluated and placed into this model. Under this plan, NHS England will pay a fixed annual fee for access to the two antibiotics of £10 million per year for 10 years. The contracts are still in the draft stages and are expected to be finalised over the coming weeks the UK is set to be the first country worldwide to implement this new type of payment model for antimicrobials, one that's poised to reverse decades of decline in the category. So exciting stuff.
0: Certainly. Now, up next is a story from the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. Last week, members of the EFPIA committed to take a necessary step to reduce inequalities in patient access to medicines across Europe.
1: The pledge comes off the back of new data published by FPA that showed significant and increasing disparities in the time it takes for patients to access new medicines across different EU member states. For example, it was reported that in Germany, the wait time is around 133 days, whereas in Romania, this was a staggering 899 days.
0: That's right. And smaller and Eastern European member states are also facing disparities in terms of availabilities in innovative medicines. Less than 30% of centrally approved products are available in these countries compared with countries like Germany that has 92% availability.
1: To create better access for patients, member companies of FPIA have pledged to file for pricing and reimbursement in all EU countries no later than two years from central EU market authorisation, where local systems permit it. The commitment is expected to drastically increase the accessibility of innovative drugs in EU countries and lessen wait times for patients by several months.
0: And our final story this week is a bit of a double whammy. Pfizer and Moderna have both announced they've hired new chief financial officers. Pfizer, based in New York, has announced that David Denton will take over as CFO on Monday, the 2nd of May, ending his time as finance chief for the home improvement retailer Lowe's.
1: Meanwhile, for Massachusetts-based Moderna, their new CFO, Jorge Gomez, will take on his new position one week later on Monday the 9th of May. Gomez previously held the position of CFO at dental supply company Supply Sorona. COVID-19 vaccine sales have enhanced both Pfizer and Moderna's financial performance and the vaccine makers are exploring ways to deploy the recently generated income. I'm sure these two CFOs will take it in their stride.
0: Next up, Helena and Isabel are going to remind us of some of our guests' predictions for 2022 to find out just how accurate they were and the steps the industry has taken towards many of these important goals.
1: Hi, Isabel. How are you?
2: Hi, Helena. Yes, I'm well, thank you. Really keen to check in on a few pharma predictions from earlier in the year and see what progress has been made. Absolutely. So the first prediction we're going to look at was from
1: Julie Ross, the president of Advanced Clinical. She predicted that 2022 would see an uptick in decentralized clinical trials. She
2: did. Let's take a listen. Prediction number one decentralized clinical trials will continue to gain momentum. The importance of decentralized trials is the ability for us to reach more
1: patients to put new drug um, assets and and those that are in development in front of more and more patients across the globe. So it was estimated that around 1,300 trials with a decentralized and or virtual component would commence in 2022. That's a 28% increase from the previous year. But is there any
2: evidence to support this yet? So the decentralized trial landscape is still very much a work in progress, I would say, with different countries approaching the overhaul in really very different ways. So, for example, Denmark has specially amended their regulations to allow direct-to-patient drug deliveries to happen outside of the pandemic setting, which is obviously great. And Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration has followed suit, and they've also shown a really open-minded approach to decentralized trials.
1: However, other countries like Germany have been less enthusiastic. German regulation dictates that a German citizen cannot take part in a remote trial in another country when the drug is delivered directly to their home. But they could take part if they traveled to the site to collect the medication themselves. So clearly this process does little to solve the pain points of expense and travel time, which are the current blockers for many patients wanting to take part in clinical trials in the first place.
2: Yeah, it's troubling. And on top of this, inconsistency is making it hard to create remote trial protocols, particularly for multi-country studies for the reasons we've just discussed. So if decentralized trials are to become more widespread, it is likely there's going to need to be a lot more cohesion between countries to improve adoption globally. Having said all of this, there have been
1: some fantastic examples of remote trials so far this year. This includes a trial for people with both substance abuse disorders and HIV. Trial designers have swapped the lab for a mobile medical van, which travels directly to individual patients to facilitate their participation in the trial. This is a particularly important development in the world of decentralized trials as substance abuse patients are some of the least suited to the remote trial model as to maintain adherence, patients typically need human touch points in order to feel connected and part of the treatment and research
2: experience. Mm, indeed. Another update in the world of decentralized trials is on March the 1st, Sequester, the leading patient-centric healthcare technology company, joined the Decentralised Trials and Research Alliance. Now this is a group of over 120 life sciences and healthcare organisations that are really committed to accelerating the adoption of decentralised trials and research. So sequester joining this is obviously a huge step towards further bolstering the organisation which was actually set up during the pandemic to address clinical trial disruptions in the first place. Moving
1: on now to another prediction. And this one came from Kay Wesley, who is CEO of Kanga Health. And it was around the form medical congresses and conferences would take in 2022 and beyond. So in 2021,
2: we saw some slightly different approaches where we saw some more short webinars allowing customers to go into breakout rooms and have discussions And we're starting to see some more innovative way to present uh, clinical evidence and new data, which is fantastic. And I think this can be developed further. So in 2022, I predict we'll see some real hybrid congresses going on, where really it's up to you whether you attend in person or remotely. And this might be due to distance or or convenience. Uh, Many customers will still want to attend in person, but a much larger number will want to attend remotely. So as we've just heard, Kay has said she believed it is unlikely that events would return to being fully in person. And in the main, she was correct. Most events
1: have retained a hybrid structure with only some conferences and congresses returning to completely physical formats. An example of the latter being Reuters USA, which took place in person in Philadelphia earlier this year.
2: Yeah, so as hybrid stuck, innovation has definitely grown um, with events experimenting with various different formats and features to make their offerings as engaging as possible for in-person attendees and virtual attendees alike. In an article coming out in the next issue of Gold, which is out next Tuesday, by the way, for everyone listening, we discuss how events are introducing things like gamification to keep their virtual audiences in particular really engaged. Yes, and this can include quizzes or point based systems for attending
1: talks. Many hybrid events are also offering attendees the chance to attend asynchronously by recording talks and making them available on demand.
2: Yeah, and also others are releasing pre-recorded sessions and then encouraging attendees to attend live Q&As and workshops during the event itself. So yeah, there's loads of emerging creative approaches to hybrid events, and I think it's definitely an indication that they are here to stay. Indeed, and I think particularly
1: from a sustainability and climate change perspective, this is a shift that we can expect to stick around for a long time to come. As the younger workforce rises through the ranks, particularly millennial and Gen Z medical professionals, we can expect them to be in favour of pharma companies offering at least hybrid events to cut carbon emissions and all that kind
2: of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, another prediction from the beginning of the year came from Jennifer Kane Buck Moser, who is the Vice President and Global Head of Patient Access at Sobi, and she revealed her belief that the extraordinary collaboration that we saw during the pandemic was definitely here to stay, just as those fantastic hybrid events were. The second trend that we're going to see is a rise of public-private development partnerships. Now, we've seen a flurry of this through COVID drug and vaccine development, as well as in treating diseases, uh, neglected diseases and diseases in global health, specifically what we've seen for the past 22 years in malaria through drug and now vaccine development. I think we're gonna see more and more of this across sectors, across again, public and private entities, as well as across companies. It's just going to be the new way of working is that we're going to be collaborative through drug discovery and development.
1: So, Jennifer predicted there that the collaboration between both public and private entities, as well as between pharma companies themselves, would continue. To what extent have we
2: seen this, do you think, Isabel? Well, to start with, public-private partnerships. So, right at the start of the year, we saw the EU's Innovative Medicines Initiative, otherwise known as the IMI, become the Innovative Health Initiative. So, IHI now. And while the IMI brought together the European Commission and the IFPIA. The IHI is aiming to also bring in bodies representing medical technology, digital health and loads of other companies working in life sciences. So it's a lot broader. Absolutely. And this will drive the scope for public private partnerships in Europe
1: between the industry and public bodies with the overall aim of spurring on cross-sectional discoveries in fields such as drug development, digital health, big data and imaging.
2: Absolutely. And on a company level, an example of a really exciting public-private partnership that has taken place this year is between biotech company Moderna, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So the threesome are working together on an experimental antigen HIV vaccine that is harnessing Moderna's mRNA platform. Yes, the vaccine show promising results in a proof of concept trial, and the first
1: doses have now been administered in the phase one trial. If approved, the vaccine will be a crucial step towards utilising mRNA beyond COVID nineteen to improve overall
2: human health, and it is evidence of the value of partnerships of this kind. A hundred percent, and we actually interviewed Claire Skentlebury, who's the director general of Europa Bio. Um, all around this on the value of public-private partnerships in the biotech space. So if you are really interested in this topic, do be sure to check out that episode. We'll leave it in the show notes. Yes, I love
1: chatting to Claire, and that episode is well worth a listen. But staying on the topic of collaboration, like Jennifer predicted, cross-company collaboration has continued as well, hasn't it, Isabel?
2: Yeah, so a really good example of this is a recent partnership between Pfizer and the South African pharma company Aspen. Uh, So the pair recently signed an agreement for Aspen to manufacture Pfizer's vaccine for the African market. And this is going to make the vaccine the first to be made by an African company for people living on the continent, which is a really landmark moment for market
1: access. Indeed it is. And another great example is the collaboration between Sanofi and GSK on their adjuvanted COVID-19 vaccine. This partnership has continued to thrive as the year has progressed. And in fact, the European Medicines Agency began their review of the vaccine at the end of March. So we can expect a decision shortly,
2: I am sure. Yeah. And it is just fantastic to see even more COVID-19 vaccines. I think you agree nearing the market. And this really is just further evidence of how powerful cross-company collaboration can be. So long may it continue, I say. Long may it continue
1: indeed. So for the most part, I'd say it seems like many of our former guests' predictions are ringing true at this stage in the year. There have been more instances of decentralised trials, albeit there is work to be done to ensure regulatory harmonisation across countries. Hybrid events have not only continued, but have become bigger and better than ever before. And finally, partnerships are thriving, both between pharma and public bodies and through cross-company collaborations too.
0: And sadly, that's all we have time for for this week's episode. A big thank you to Isabel and to Helena for that great conversation there. Do look out for the latest issue of Gold, which is going to be out next week. And that will be available to download on www.emg-gold.com. We'll be back as usual next week. But until then, take care, stay safe and goodbye for now.
1: Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.